I just, like I said, I love big events. I mean, they bring so much energy to me. I'm passionate about racers, talking to racers, and setting up great courses, you know, making sure that our events are fun and innovative, and that's where my passion lies. That was Brian Gallant, and this is episode 51 of the Inspired Souls podcast. Hi, I'm Carolyn, and I'm a roadrunner. And I'm Kim, and I'm a trail runner. Welcome to our podcast, where we bring the communities of trail and road running together and explore the parallels between running and life. Brian Gallant is a full-time mountain trail race director from Crow's Nest Pass, Alberta, where he runs Sinister Sports, a growing operation that puts on trail races that many recognize and respect, including the famous Sinister Triple, the Sinister 7 Ultra, the Canadian Death Race, and the Blackspur Ultra. Brian has been race directing for 20 years, and over that time, he has developed a unique perspective on the sport, looking at it from an angle that, in his words, nobody notices unless something goes wrong. He shares why he does what he does, the core values with which he anchors his organization, and what it takes to remain sustainable in today's trail racing climate. He highlights the racer experience as his number one priority, and I have both cursed him and blessed him as I've traversed his race courses. If you are a trail runner in Western Canada, you've heard of Sinister Sports and no doubt have done or want to do one of Brian's races. COVID has taught us that having the opportunity to race is a gift and not a given. We hope that you will aspire to something sinister in 2022 and sign up for one of the six tempting trail races offered by Brian and his crew at Sinister Sports. Without further ado, let's talk. So Brian, welcome to the Inspired Souls podcast. Great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you uh, getting me on the show. Carolyn and I are very interested to talk to you. Um, we are very much fans of races and race directors on this podcast, and we've had a few on, and uh, we've had nobody to talk to since, you know, a summer of running has, has happened now post-COVID around the country, and we're really interested to get to know you a little bit more as well as hear about your experiences as a trail mountain race director in the summer of 2021. So, why don't you get started by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I am a full-time race director. This is my my occupation. And you know, we have enough events now that a number of years ago, I decided it, it was better than trying to balance sort of a, a corporate life and, you know, all that brought with, you know, this passion of mine, race directing, which uh, was taking up more and more of my time. So I decided it was time to leave my previous career and uh, move on to something that uh, really fulfilled me. And it has been really great overall. Uh, the last year and a half aside, uh, I've been race directing for 20 years now, and uh, it's generally been good, again, except for the 2020 season and part of the 2021 season. It has been uh, a really good adventure and, you know, it's kept, uh, kept us active and engaged with the running community, which I love. And, uh, you know, we made a lot of great friends through that. And so it, it's something that's uh, very, very near and dear to me. Uh, my background is actually industrial design. I worked in product manufacturing um, on the design side, the concept development side, mostly for a number of years. And then I moved into marketing. And uh, I just I just realized that, you know, 
I spent most of my day sitting in an office, staring out the window at the mountains, wishing I could be there. And I finally thought, if I want to be there so much, why don't I just leave, you know, go there, be there. And so we, I, I quit my job hmm. and we came here, Christmas Pass. So that explains the amazing custom-made medals and bling and things that you give away at your races. You're a talented man. Yeah, you know, I have a real passion for making things still, and that hasn't changed. I think my my educational background being in, in industrial design, it, it, it gives me a, a sense of, uh, you know, attention to detail. It gives me a sense of paying attention to those things that matter and uh, the customer experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to imagine that one goes into race directing because they have some kind of connection with the running community. So is that kind of part of your origin story? Are you a runner and, and fell in love with the running first and then the race directing? Well, you know, my, my start in racing wasn't actually until my late 20s. I started out adventure racing, so multi-sport racing. Basically, I met some friends to my new job in Calgary when I moved back there. They were into these 36-hour races, and I thought, that's just, that's not possible. There's no way anybody could race for 36 hours straight. And I was so intrigued. Um, I went and I volunteered to support their, their team, and I absolutely fell in love with it at the time. I started to race, and I, I really put it uh, in front of me to to be good in these different disciplines like mountain biking and, and uh, trail running, navigation, paddling. And uh, so it kind of is a bit of a, a twisted route to trail running, but I started getting into orienteering to be better at navigation. And then somebody from my orienteering club in Calgary, when I used to live there, they said, you know, we'd like you to join our trail running team in this race that's coming up. And I said, well, I'm not really a trail runner, you know, I just, I just orienteer and I running around is part of orienteering. But, you know, I said, you know, if you need somebody else on the team, just, just pick somebody else. I'll, 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 feel, I'll do whatever you want, but, you know, don't expect much from me. And then we went to this race in Canmore. I think it was a one and done kind of race. Like this guy just organized it for fun, uh, for one particular cause one time. It was the light up the world relay trying to get LED lights to small villages in Nepal. And I think I don't think I've ever heard of it again, but I, I got out there and it was it was a relay. And I ran the second stage, just I think it was just 5K. But I ended up with the second fastest time on my stage, on my on that stage. Wow. Uh, only I was only beaten by um, this guy, this junior from uh, the Canadian junior trail running team. So I was pretty impressed with myself and I thought, you know wow, I actually can do this. This is actually something I really enjoy. And it's not just uh, an adjunct to, to orienteering. I actually really enjoy trail running as a sport. You know, my first sort of solo race after that, not long after that, was uh, Five Peaks and Jewel Pass. And, uh, you know, it just took off from there. I ended up being in races, probably competing in races, probably, oh, I would say every second weekend throughout the summer every year. Uh, until I'm probably into my 30, early 30s. And then some injuries started to take over and I kind of slowed down a bit. But also my race directing ticked up at that point. So, you know, I found that I got into race directing to be around racers, to be racing more. Um, but when I started to organize more races, I found I had less time to train and to race. And my focus really became uh, largely on putting together great events. Well, you know, orienteering and trail running, I think they have 
in common the fact that you just need to be able to move as efficiently as possible through the terrain you're in, right? And um, you probably were naturally inclined for both by being able to do that. You live in some amazing terrain and uh, areas of area of the world right now. So you didn't um, actually mention when you quit your job and became a race director and moved to the mountains, where, where did you go? Um, well, let's see, we would have left in, uh, oh, would have been 2008. And, you know, I was working uh, at this large, one of the world's largest office furniture manufacturers. And I worked in a particular division that was based in Calgary. And, uh, you know, it was a good job. I mean, my, my boss was really great. And I enjoyed working for him. I found the corporate life a bit tedious. Uh, you know, I, I found that I was always, you know, I'd have to um, put on a suit most days. And I just, it felt like I was wearing somebody else's clothes all the time. It wasn't me. Um, traveling a lot for work. And that became very tedious as well. And, you know, it was travel that I found to be just kind of boring and, and uh, not, um, not inspiring. It was just go to this city, live in a hotel room, do training all day, mm-hmm. and go back to the hotel, have some dinner and go back to the hotel room and watch movies, right? It wasn't like I was inspired by that kind of travel. Um, so in 2008, we uh, moved to Krosnes Pass. Uh, my wife's a flight attendant, so she was able to keep her job, thankfully, because, you know, for the first while when we did this move, it was a little bit tough financially. Uh, so we built a house. I took a year off work and I built a house. And uh, we now live in this place. And, uh, you know, we've never looked back. Awesome. So maybe now you could tell us just a, a little bit about some of the races that you direct. Like your company is called Sinister Sports, right? Right. And how many races do you direct? Give us a little overview of the races, and then maybe we'll get into some of your favorites. Sure. And how you started to add them and, and come up with them and acquire them. Yeah. Sure. Well, um, our original race was called Full Moon in June. It was an adventure race, and the company used to be called the Full Moon Adventure Company. And Full Moon in June was a 36-hour adventure race throughout Alberta and BC. And it would move around every year. And the course was never the same. Although we might revisit a certain area, um, a big part of the mystery was not knowing the course until you got to the race uh, and you received the maps a few hours before. Uh, And that's what really got me into this, uh, that kind of racing. Over the years, you know, we we decided to start Sinister 7 in... Uh, 2007, I guess, was the first uh, the first time we started talking about it, having a big ultra marathon in our home community. Um, I had I was just planning to move here at the time, and so I wasn't here. My my former uh, partner in this, he was already here. He really wanted to do an ultra marathon, and so that's when we came up with Sinister Seven. And uh, you know, we both played a really large role in the creation of the event. Everything from the brand to the the naming to the course, uh, we all we both had our, our hands in it in different ways. Be- that became our marquee event very quickly over a few years. A few years, it just took off. And so, after I think it was in two thousand, oh, it must have been around two thousand fourteen or f- two thousand fifteen, I guess. We'd stopped doing our adventure races just because you know they weren't really thriving anymore. You know, it was it was tough to get anybody to show up, and it took a heck of a lot of work to get just a hundred people out. So, you know, it wasn't, uh, that wasn't a going concern anymore, but Sinister 7 was kind of growing by leaps and bounds. So we decided to change the name of the company to Sinister Sports to reflect our marquee event. 
Um, I started Blackspur in uh, 2015. And part of the reason was I just love to explore these new areas. And, you know, that's a big part of what I enjoy about race directing is the creation of the course, the creation of the elements that make up a great race and kind of balancing the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, you, you know, knowing when to really throw it at them and really annoying mm-hmm. them to back off and, <laughs> and make it more runnable and get them, give them a chance to recover. All of our events have this, um, people seem to think that they're just constantly relentless, but there are lots of places in our races where, you know, we give them a chance to get on some flowy, smooth trail that, you know, lets them run fully and not just uh, struggle the whole time. Theoretically, however, those flowy, smooth parts are usually in the hot, suffocating <laughs> areas where it's a different kind of suffering. That's something we can't control, unfortunately. But, um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so, you know, we created Blacksburg, and part, part of the reason, too, was, you know, I really wanted to explore the Kimberly area, and there were no events around there. And um, honestly, we had so many people that wanted to race Sinister that we were turning them away. So we thought, you know, it's a good chance to to give an alternative and we can provide that same great experience in a new location. I had always wanted to have, after a few years of that, I really wanted to have a series. And one of my concerns about the uh, sustainability of trail running and ultra marathoning and just racing in general is every year, like when I first started race directing, I think there were probably, I can count the number of ultra marathons in Western Canada on one hand. And now it seems like two more are added to the calendar every year. And I just don't think that's sustainable. So I didn't want to create another new event just to kind of split that pie thinner and thinner. You know, it's, it's great to have choice, but at the same time, um, it's not great to have a bunch of races that only have you know, 50 to 100 people at them either. Um, I prefer big races. I like to having the energy of races with tons of people and it gives me a lot of satisfaction. So that's kind of what I want to do. So to each their own. Right. But uh, for me, I just, I, I just see that, uh, a lot of these races struggle and disappear. I'd rather see more uh, really high quality races than a bunch of sort of one and done races. So I didn't want to create a new race. And so that's when I thought I'd heard from a lot of racers that, you know, death races struggling, you know, they may not continue, which would be a real shame because death race inspired now three generations of runners. I mean, you know, people always sort of compared and contrasted Sinister Seven with Death Race being the two biggest sort of races and the most notorious races in, in Alberta. But I, I didn't want to see it disappear. So I just talked to the, the former director and I said, look, you know, I hear that you may be interested in, in uh, getting out of this. So what would it take to, to make that happen? Let me take over. And it took a little while, but uh, we agreed that I was, you know, what we do with Sinister Seven and with Sinister Sports in general is the best fit. And uh, yeah, we were able to to come up with uh, a way to make that happen. The Canadian Death Race was the first ultra marathon I'd ever heard of. You know, mm-hmm. a couple decades ago, and I remember same thing, thinking that's inhumanly impossible. Like people can't possibly run 125 kilometers in the mountains. And a few years ago, I had the privilege of coming and, and doing the race 2018, which I believe was was that your first year running the race 2018? That's right. We took over in the fall of 2017 and made the big announcements. And then 2018 was the first year that we hosted it. Okay. And then um, 
Sin 7, I got to tell you another little interesting story. I was down in Tahoe for the Tahoe 100 in 2019. And I was sitting there, this Canadian, and I think there were only four of us Canadians in the whole race. And I was at the pre-race table visiting with people. And as soon as they found out I was Canadian, I'm not lying. Several of them said, oh, Sinister 7, that's a race up in Canada I really want to do. I've heard it so hard. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, Sin 7 has a reputation internationally. So we're really blessed and fortunate to have, you know, races of this caliber and prestige really here in Alberta and in Canada. So on behalf of the running community, I will say it once and I'll probably say it a hundred times during this podcast. Thank you for doing what you're doing, but yeah, tell us the rest of the story. So you now are running three different races and what came next? Well, we had, you know, a modest 2018 with the first year of death race. People were still getting their heads around having sort of new management and they wanted to see what was going to, going to happen. And I heard a lot of, well, well, maybe we'll race next year. So 2019 was the 20th annual. And there was a lot of people that were kind of confused by annual versus the anniversary. Um, anniversary means you had to have had a full year already. So this was the 20th annual. It was the 20th running that, you know, meaning we counted it as zero, the first one. So that was great fun. And the numbers went way up, which was exciting for me because I, I just, like I said, I love big events. I mean, they bring so much energy to me and that's really what I want to see. Um, you know, within reason, obviously every race has its capacity. And, uh, I think we reached that, uh, a good capacity, uh, that year in 2019 with about just over 1100 runners. Wow, uh, That's a, a great number. I think, uh, I don't think the town could handle much more. I don't think that the race venues can handle much more. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was kind of my goal, my cap. Um, and then of course COVID hit, um, which completely changed everything. You know, we had a great season plans and the shutdown the provincial governments started. It was sort of for the events industry as a whole, it was kind of the nuclear option. You know, most event companies that I know of and ourselves included lost somewhere between 90 to 100% of their revenue. Uh, so it was very hard for event companies to survive that. We scrambled from the early days. At first we were being, you know, oh, it's going to pass. It'll be okay. We'll get through this. You know, we have lots of smart scientists who can steer us through this and smart doctors who can help us along the way. And of course, as you, you know, things got worse and worse. And then finally, uh, I believe it was April 23rd, 2020, we were told very specifically that no events are going to happen this summer. And that's when we had to bite the bullet and cancel everything. Uh, we had been hoping and hoping and hoping that they would see that, you know, outdoor events aren't harmful. Uh, there are a big cause for, uh, uh, for spread of COVID. And we actually have data to show that too. You know, we work with some really interesting internationally uh, known scientists to, to gather that information. So we tried to pivot as much as we could into virtual running, but, you know, trail runners want that grit and that live experience and they want to meet the people. It's the community is such a big part of it. People helped us by signing up and it was very much appreciated, but I just don't think that they were that into it for the long term. So it's good to be getting back to regular racing now. You know, uh, I mean, we really appreciate everybody who, we signed up for our virtual runs. We met some really nice new people too, who are now hopefully going to be trail runners going forward. But, you know, it wasn't really our passion. You know, I think it was something that a lot of companies, a lot of organizations tried to do 
in in the short term to to try to get things just keep the doors open really just to survive yeah. just to survive I and mean, that's what it, what it came down to is we're just surviving at this point and you know a lot of event organizations uh, and the bigger ones were actually the most at risk the biggest ones were the ones that really couldn't just sort of uh, put it on the shelf and come back to it because they had a lot of overhead. You know, we're talking like, you know, the size of Calgary Marathon and above, especially. They're the ones that I think that struggled the most. Small organizations that are more um, solely but volunteer-based, they seem to have a bit of an easier time just because, you know, they didn't have that kind of overhead. Didn't have a payroll and... Yeah, you know, when like we get that, to yeah. a certain size of event, you know, you do need to have staff just because yeah. uh, even if it's a nonprofit, you need to have staff just because things need to get done day to day. You can't just... Uh, you know, stop what you're doing for nine months of the, for nine months of the year. You have to keep that that ball rolling. You have to keep your permits going. I mean, we apply for permits usually nine months to twelve months in advance for most of our races in Alberta. Um, most of the time, not so much this year because of the uncertainty. In BC, we get a five year permit. We're planning five years out for our BC races. Wow. So you know, it, it's a long term project for a lot of us. I mean, I start planning for a, a race like Sinister Seven probably 14 months in advance, not like the hard, heavy duty, the, like the hard part of it, like all the purchasing and all that, but, you know, ideas that we can't bring to fruition maybe for this year, but we, okay, we say, well, let's put a pin in that for now. And we have two months to the race. That's a good idea. Let's not lose that. Let's put it aside until next year. So, you know, 14 months in advance, we're thinking of things that we want to implement in the following year. So these are long-term projects and, uh, for a, for a lot of races, especially the larger races. The bigger events also struggle because they they have to purchase earlier. You know, if you want 2,000 medals, you can't just call up a local vendor and get that. I mean, you're buying them out of a major manufacturer now. It takes us usually four months to get our medal order. And so you have to think way ahead. You have to hope you get enough and, and you know, you hope you don't run short. And sometimes you're at the finish line thinking, oh God, we have like three more people to finish and they have three medals left. <laughs> Hopefully somebody dropped two medals left. Hopefully somebody drops out. Okay. So now <laughs> I understand why you keep making your races harder and harder. You want more DNFs. <laughs> no, it's not quite like that. I mean, I, I think the DNFs are, are, are part of the race. If I see a dropout rate that's too high for a particular type of race, I, I'll adjust it. Um, but every race in my, my mind has a certain finish percentage that is acceptable. And I think it's it's not unusual. I think it's actually good to just say, you know, you go to a race, you race it, and it kicks your butt. And you say, you know what? I've learned a lot. I'm going to come back again. I'm going to yeah. nail it next time. Yeah. And especially for for uh, newer ultramarathoners, I think that's a really important step to take. Uh, and sometimes actually veterans need to be reminded too, you know, it's humbling. Mm -hmm. You know, the race sometimes wins, not you. So, you know, I think that... Uh, a dropout rate is, is a reality. Uh, I mean, I would love to see everyone finish all of our races all the time, but I just know it's not a reality. Well, and people want something to push for and strive for. And if, if it was too easy, people wouldn't be doing it, right? So yeah, it is a balance. The, one of the people that said this the best was a, a guy that designs mountain bike trails. We were out testing out this brand new trail that we helped build. It's called Bermagrin. And there's a couple of jumps on it that are really tough and only a handful of people can ever get it on the first couple of tries. And they come back and they try it, they bail, they try it and they bail. And they, they get the designer, I said, well, geez, that seems a little bit too tough. Like maybe it's a little dangerous. And he said, you know what? If you don't give them something to aspire to, 
it just becomes vanilla and they get bored and they move on somewhere else. And so you give them these things that may take them a whole summer to get this land, this one jump. And that's a great feeling when you finally do it. And that's that, that really resonated with me and kind of justified what I always had in the back of my mind about finish rates is that, you know, you make it too easy and it just, you know, you don't want it to become like a, like a fun run, right? You want it to be something that people aspire to. And, not, and not, there is a balance, right? And there are lots of factors that go into that, including weather. It's a big part of it. Yes. And I, I know that finish rates drop depending on the weather as well. Yeah. And, and that, that, that is a, a big factor that we can't control. Like at Sinister 7, for instance, I know that our finish rate drops by about a third. We have about a 35-ish percent finish rate in a normal year. If we have a really hot year, like blistering hot year, it's going to drop to about 20%. I just, I just know that. And it, it, it irritates me, but there's nothing you can do about it. It's just now another factor in the race. Well, it just keeps it sustainable because people are going to want to come back on a cooler year and try again for you. My, my goal really is to have at least a 35% finish rate at Sinister 7. And I think that the difference between us and some other races, people have asked, well, you know, you got like Western states and these other 100 milers that have a much higher finish rate you must be doing something wrong. And that's not true. What it is, is we get a lot of novice runners, whereas races like Western States, you have to qualify for those. So you already have a lot of, a number of ultras under your belt by the time you get to a big race like that. And we don't have that. We'll take anybody who's a little bit crazy and just, you know, put them out there. Um, everybody that has the, the gumption to do it, we're willing to, uh, to put them through the paces for sure. Um, and you know, that's, that's really inspiring to me. I love seeing these people come out for the first time and, and a lot of newcomers crush it. They suffer a lot and they learn a lot, but, uh, it's great to see them out there. I had one ultra marathoner years ago in the early days of Sinister seven, this guy that had never run a hundred mile before won the race and this other sort of veteran runners, like, ah, these newcomers, they just, they just don't know that they're not supposed to be able to finish yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So, you know, you've given me a perfect segue. I wanted to ask you, you know, you're, you're quite well respected in the running community, not just in Alberta, but really many parts of Canada and, and the U.S. And I want to know, like, what have been, besides being very intentional about finish rates, what guiding principles and values have you decided to build Sinister Seven, or sorry, Sinister Sports on that really are important to you? Hmm. Well, fundamentally, it's just about the racer experience. If it's not going to add to the racer experience, we don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Um, you know, a lot of things get in the way when you get to a larger scale event. And it's, it's a real problem to, to kind of keep it real, you know? And like the way you introduced me, you said, you know, you're this notoriety around Canada, et cetera. Honestly, I'm just a guy that puts on races and I love putting on races. And that's sort of where I have to center myself all the time is, yeah, we're, we're, we're a bigger organization doing it. And that has brought a lot of um, both positive and negative um, um, comments uh over the years it's it's important to keep it about the racer experience and i think that um that's why i always remind our crew is that we're we're here to provide a good experience and you know it's about the racers and making them feel like they're part of this community uh, because community the racer community is very important to me and that's that's sort of where we spend a lot of our time if you follow us on social media a lot of it is around 
uh, community building and around, uh, you know, engaging with people in a really grassroots way. So I guess if we had a philosophy, it would be professional organization with a grassroots feel. That's kind of how I envision what we do. But really fundamentally, it's about that racer experience. You know, I had to give somebody a role just dealing with sponsors because it's definitely not my strength. I have a really hard time asking people for stuff. You know, my focus at a race like Sinister 7 is keeping track of, uh, you know, 1,600 people running around in the woods and making sure that they're safe and they're fed and they're comfortable. Not comfortable, but uh, you know what I mean. They're, uh, they're um, taken care of and that we're not losing them, that we're tending to their medical needs. That's really my focus. And a lot of stuff, we love our sponsors, but I mean, I got to be honest, that to me, that's just not something that's a priority for me when I'm racing. So I have people that focus just on that. So the sponsors do get honored the way they need to, uh, because I certainly wouldn't do it myself. <laughs> that's just not my strength. It, there's definitely a lot of parts to events like this. And I, I, I learned early on in my career, actually before my career started as a designer, I had one really terrible class in university, professional practices. The instructor was awful, really awful. And he said one thing though, I believe in always taking one nugget out of every experience like that, whether it's a class or a conference. I've been to a lot of terrible conferences and taking a lot of terrible classes. And the one thing he said that always stuck with me, this nugget, was that if you're good at something, stick to that and get other people to do the things you're not good at. If you're not good at bookkeeping, don't drive yourself crazy with the bookkeeping. If you can, if you can just pay a guy part-time, like a couple hours a week to do your bookkeeping. Take someone, get somebody to do your sponsorship stuff for you. That's what you're not good at. Get somebody to um, take on all that, that stuff that just doesn't resonate with you. I'm passionate about racers and talking to racers and setting up great courses, you know, making sure that our events are fun and innovative. And that's where my passion lies. And so the bookkeeping side of it and the sponsorship side of it, I really want to make sure that I'm not doing those things because I'm not very good at it. And so it's better that I put it in somebody else's hands. Well, Carolyn, I know you have something you want to say here, but I just got to say, you know, you mentioned the racer experience and one thing I think you did really well through COVID, maybe that's your marketing background coming, coming through, is you stayed so connected. You were always doing updates on social media, on your Facebook page, on YouTube, or I think it was Facebook Live, you know, updates. And sometimes there was a little to say, sometimes there was a lot to say, but racers were just craving connection to the community. And, and I think that went a long, long way with your runners and your racers. You did a, a lot with rollovers, you know, letting people roll over their events and, and even giving extra swag just because a person couldn't run, they got an extra hat or something. Like you didn't have to do all that stuff. So, you know, that stuff doesn't go unnoticed. And yeah, I can say, see, that's a natural, natural thing for you. Kellen, sorry, what, what were you going to say? Well, just kind of on that note, I was just going to say, I, I really do not think you can ever go wrong when you start with the end in mind in terms of like that customer yeah. experience. What do I need to do to really give them that experience from start to finish, right? From registering mm -hmm. on the website all the way to race day, right? And I mm -hmm. think also to your point, like 
why would I do the bookkeeping and why would I do the sponsorship if they're not a strength of mine? I think that is, I read a book about that um, way, way back where it's like, invest your energy in what you're already good at. And, and just to your point, like hire out all that other stuff that you're not, because it's a drain. Like, yes, you can do it. And yes, you might save a penny by um, not hiring out for that. But it, if it like sucks the life out of you, um, then that's not a worthwhile trade-off. And so I think it's really astute of you to have recognized like that's not my area, but I'm going to hire this awesome team and we'll complement each other. So... Mm-hmm. I love that. So earlier you were talking about, you know, planning 14 months in advance. Like you're always, you've always got the next event, like over a year away that you're, you're already putting plans in motion for the medals take four months. Like what are some of the other things that, that you think maybe people don't understand about race directing that you would want them to know? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I, I know a lot of race directors. I mean, over the last 20 years, I made a lot of friends and we're, I guess you could call us competitors in a way, but we all have generally a really good rapport. Like I said earlier, I really want to see more high quality races um, out there. What we all, I think, see is that there's this depth of work that goes into it that if we do our jobs well, nobody else ever really notices. You know, the amount of planning that goes into it and the packing alone uh, in the weeks leading up to it, I was out on this past, well, this past week uh, for our new event, one of our new events, uh, Castle Alpine Trail Race, I was out with a brush saw, you know, clearing up trails because I just, I didn't have anybody else that could do it. And I felt I needed to see it. I needed to be on the ground and to, you know, to really ground truth it as what my, my assistant Adria calls it, to ground truth the, the, the area and make sure that I had a good feel for what uh, the, the trail is like, and, you know, to not lose that connection. So we were out there again on the weekend, uh, all weekend, you know, uh, uh, verifying everything and making sure that the terrain is exactly what we want for this race. And we actually decided to make a couple of changes, which we have to announce this week, just because of, you know, looking at the, the safety side of things, there's one trail we we're using in that race that I just realized that from the last time I looked at it to now it's been overgrown with, with, uh, berry bushes and, uh, Wow, it's like a it's like a, a a playpen for bears, and so I decided it's just not worth trying to send racers through there. As entertaining as it might sound, it's just not going to work. <laughs> so, um, and then plus, it was a very remote area, and I'm not against that. I mean, you don't want to lose that experience of being in the remote wilderness, but you also have to think if an accident does happen in this area, what are the chances of getting them out safely and quickly? You know, some areas are single track and they're harder to get to for a rescue. But, um, you know, in this case, this particular trail I'm thinking of, it was so difficult to access by anybody. It would only be a helicopter rescue if something happened. And that's something I do try to avoid. You know, lots of our races have single track sections that are remote, but at least we can get them to, with a bit of help, get them out to a more accessible area. Um, Fairly if not fairly easily, but, you know, um, within a few hours. Timely, yeah. Uh, which is not un- unrealistic, I don't think, in a wilderness race. You know, four to five hours for a rescue is not unrealistic. But in this case, it was so remote that I thought, geez, if something did happen here, if it's, say, inclement weather, a lot of slip-fall issues because it's a really green trail and there's bears everywhere potentially around here because it's a really high, uh, there's a really high density of, uh, of food that would attract bears. So just not worth it. I think we're going to need to make a bit of a switch. So those are sort of the things that are on my mind when I'm out there planning. 
Um, a big part of race planning that people don't realize, it's the safety aspect too. I mean, what happens when, when the poop does hit the fan? Does the race have a good protocol in place to get people out? What if there's a bigger emergency? We always coach all of our crew and volunteers on you know, effective communications, and, and we've never had an extreme incident. But we have a plan around, you know, what happens if there is a fatality? What happens if there is a forest fire? What happens if there, there is a bear attack, you know, or some kind of uh, incident? What if there is uh, somebody threatening racers on the course? You know, those are the sort of things that you need to think through and how you're going to respond and what kind of resources do you have? And, you know, I've seen a lot of new races, unfortunately, and I'm, I'm generally pretty generous with my time. If somebody wants to talk about, you know, hey, I've got this race I want to do and well, you know, you know, can you give me some advice on this and that and the other thing? I'm generally pretty open to, to talking with them. And, and I'm sort of shocked by the the disconnect, you know, because races aren't just all fun and games, right? Like, you know, a lot of people show up and they think it's just a good time having to run in the woods. There's a lot of safety programming that goes into it in advance. And 99.9% of people never, ever get to see that because they never get hurt. It's that 0.1% that does get injured out there, it becomes a, a real challenge in some cases, you know. Like I know at Sinister 7, we will spend some years, if it's a hot year or a cold year, we'll spend all day pulling people off the course and all night pulling people off the course uh, because of heat issues and dehydration uh, and then at night because of hypothermia. And some of these areas are, are really challenging. So knowing how to stage your people so that you, and do you have the resources to to get, you know, 12 people out fast. Right. And I've heard horror stories, uh, events. We saw that, that, that terrible tragedy in China. Yeah. happened a few months ago. And people sounded shocked. And my response was more, I'm surprised it doesn't happen more often. Because, you know, people often go out unprepared. And I think a lot of um, event directors get, get uh, caught out thinking, you know, this is going to be a walk in the park. And then it turns sideways on them really fast. And it can happen to anybody, including us. You know, it, it, it's a reality out there that you're in the wilderness and you can do everything right and things can still go wrong. So, you know, that sort of safety planning for me is a big part of it. And, uh, you know, I just don't think it through myself. I actually run it by industry professionals who give advice on, you know, how we're going to handle things, how we're going to stage and how we're going to access things. Other things that are a big part of uh, racing uh, sponsors. I mean, we're a pretty large organization with a lot of events going on. So getting enough swag and such to, to satisfy all those runners that hit the podium uh, and all the fun awards that we do as well, it it's also has to be a big priority. Brian, I just wanted to go back for a moment to the safety aspect. I'm curious sure. what, let's dig deeper into that. Like what do you have to think about when you have first responders on the course and volunteers? Do you specifically have volunteers who have wilderness, wilderness first aid training? Like, do you, do you have requirements of your volunteers or you, do you um, just have a good network of people that, you know, do you run your own courses for your volunteers? I'm just curious. So there's a couple of different parts here uh, for a medical. We typically for a larger race, you know, if it's if it's a race where we don't have really uh, good access to say nine one one, we typically for any of our bigger events like Sinister Seven, Death Race, Blacksburg Ultra, we hire a team of paramedics. It it's my commitment and I, the kind of level of service that I want to see at our races, especially the larger ones. 
my goal is to be able to provide service up to and including um, intravenous hydration, right? Which means you have to have a certain level of professional. For that reason, you know, we do have um, paramedics on site. You know, we do take medical volunteers. We don't know if they are signing up as a nurse, a doctor, an advanced first aider, or a basic first aider. And the goal with having a volunteer medic is basic triage, like, oh, you have a boo-boo, here's a bandage. That's not to diminish them at all. It's not the case. What that does is it helps us to keep the really uh, the minor cases, like, I don't feel well, I need to have this cut looked at, I need this cleaned up. You know, it gives the first aider a chance to, to do those, that activity and, and use those skills. But it also frees up our paramedics front from having to deal with really minor stuff. And we get some pretty major stuff at our races. I mean, dehydration is nothing to, to ignore. Um, heat exhaustion and, God forbid, heat stroke are not, are not conditions to ignore. Hypothermia, I mean, these are sort of the real things. Um, at Blackspur, you know, early in the race, we had um, somebody wiped out and had bad lacerations on their arm. And they were able to clean them up. And I, I'm not aware personally, because I, I mean, I have people in charge of that. I don't have to be aware of every injury on the course, um, but it's logged and it's tracked. And that's, you know, why we have, um, uh, have paramedics all the time uh, at the larger races. Now, at some of our smaller ones, we will use just volunteer medics because, you know, we have good access to facilities. Uh, like Run the Rocks or a little 5K race. I mean, we will use just a volunteer medic as long as they have certain skills. Uh, because we know that 911 is is right there. If we call, they'll be there within a few minutes. Do you have specific um, requirements with your liability insurance? Uh, no, they haven't really given us anything like that. I think that we, you know, not to do our own horn, but over the years, um, through our most of our insurance, um, we get we use a couple different providers depending on the race. But uh, you know, the one group that provides most of our insurance they uh, i actually helped found the organization uh, that kind of that takes care of our insurance needs and uh you know i was an advisor to them for many years and i helped write the safety protocols so i i don't feel like um i feel pretty comfortable i should say that you know we that we're doing the right thing and we're on top of uh the safety side of it so no um basically for our insurance uh, for most of our races, you can bungee jump out of an airplane for all they care, as long as you're not mountain biking and you're not horseback riding. So downhill mountain biking, specifically downhill mountain biking, like downhill racing and horseback riding, it really turns them off. Oh, and automobile racing was added to our list of no-goes. Okay, wow. Um, so very, very specific. Um, we do use another insurer just in BC, um, and that's through BC Athletics. And... Um, they, they want to know what your plan is. They want to know that you have people on site. They don't tend to specify having a certain level of care as long as you have somebody who can provide care. Mm-hmm. I was always curious about that. Like, yeah, do, do the bigger races when they reach a certain number of people require professional paramedics and in EMS? But it's interesting to hear that kind of... Uh, you know, I think, honestly, as you get larger, it's... it's um, it's uh, it's a requirement that you have to put on yourself. I, I mean, yeah. I, I can't see running without. And you can go with volunteers to a certain extent. Um, but my thought is, and I'm not, again, I'm not going to criticize any other race. That's not my intention here. My thought for what we do is if something really does go wrong, can I turn to a volunteer and say, 
okay, we have this dead body here and I need you to take care of it for a little while until somebody else comes along. Can you really in good conscience put that on a volunteer? Um, volunteers are to me are still um, helping out. They're not meant to be, they're not meant to be uh, people who are taking on a great load of responsibility. And to me, that is a the kind of responsibility that's simply not something you can, you can put on somebody who's um, simply giving up some time um, in their weekend to, to help out at a race. That's just a little too much. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if I can turn to my paramedic and say, look, we have a suspected fatality. You know, I need you to deal with this. I need you to be on site. I need you to, um, to really take, take the lead on that. And I also have other safety people who are in search and rescue, which is another big part of it for us. I also hire a search and rescue team specifically with skills like ATV use, uh, ATV driving is a big part of it. Basic first aid um, is it's, it's a requirement. I mean, it, our, our search and rescue people, they don't tend to treat people. They tend to triage people. They tend to get out there. They identify, okay, you're really hurt. You're unconscious. You need to get in now. Your ankles injured. You can't move, but you're okay. And you're just being a big baby. So you can sit and wait for a few hours or you can walk it out on your own if you need to. Because we're not a taxi service, right? We're out here to, to get people in yeah. that really need care. And you have to be aware too, when you're triaging them, that somebody who is, uh, we go, we go uh, uh, red, yellow, green. Red is they need care now. Like we need to get them out now. And if that means calling 911, if it means calling in stars, that's what we'll do. We work with local EMS and local search and rescue in most places we go. And it's a little bit different for every race, but um, we let them know what we're doing so that if they get a call from a racer who doesn't call us first, that way they know to coordinate with us. That's the hope anyway, that way that we're not wondering, hey, where's this racer that disappeared off the course five hours ago? It turns out they're already at the hospital with EMS, right? We like to avoid that. So we're really plugged in with the local services, make sure that we're all coordinated. But our search and rescue, they are specifically going out and triaging people saying, look, okay, this guy is red, needs critical care. This gal is yellow. She's hurt, but she's okay. And she can sit here, bundle up. We can give her a space blanket, start a fire. She'll be okay for a few hours on her own. And then green, again, is just somebody who just, just has packed it in there. They've expired. They don't want to be up there anymore. Um, and they can wait even longer. Uh, now, people that are green and yellow can become red if you leave them too long. <laughs> yeah. So Good that's point. also with the cognizant of that, yeah, right? Yeah. So you have to be aware of the people that are out there and not just uh, cutting them loose, right? Uh, we do all we can, but we have to realize in any event, you have a certain finite amount of resource to throw at these things. And if things do go sideways, yeah, it's a very stressful situation, but it's something that did come up this year once for about half an hour during death race. Search and rescue was so busy picking up people that we had more calls coming in. I thought, do we need to suspend the race until we get on top of this? Oh, wow. You know, that's a real, a real question that I think race directors need to ask themselves when things are going sideways. And it wasn't anything the crew had done wrong. It's just we had so many calls all at once. And we had a lot of people out there. And some of the extractions were very difficult. So we just I thought, you know, I talked to my safety guys and I said, look, are we okay to keep going? Because if, if, if we're at a point now where we can no longer respond to emergencies, um, we don't want emergencies to become fatalities. Yeah. yeah. So do we need to shut down the race? Do we need to pause the race until we get on top of this? And we had a discussion and they agreed, no, we just need to get these couple people out. And once this situation result is resolved, you know, we will, uh, 
uh, would be on top of it again. Mm-hmm. And so we carried on. And, and in that case, it was a particular thorn on my side because the, the one, um, just by example, the one thing that had happened was there was a racer that had gone off course for a number of hours and we could not locate him. Oh, wow. And that became a real problem for me because the longer somebody's out there without contact, mm-hmm. the more you have to wonder what their situation mm-hmm. is. Uh, and it turns out the person just popped out of the bush eventually and they had just gone way off course, mm-hmm. kind of in the right direction, but way off course. But it, you know, their, their, their teammates, their, their family, they're there asking us every 10 minutes, what's happening with the guy? What's happening with the guy? Right. And we can't just say, well, we've given up looking because, you know, yeah. we have other important things to look at or <laughs> more immediate issues. But that's where you have to really start to prioritize and triage what's happening and accept that, you know, you can't be everywhere at once. You have to work within your resources. Mm. You know, as I listen to you talk here, Brian, I can't help but think how privileged we are as ultra marathon runners. We've chosen a sport where we're putting ourselves in a situation where, paramedics have to be on call at all times to go rescue us like what kind of a first world problem type of sport is this really like oh I you've just given me a a new angle to think about you know it really I've always had gratitude with my running but it really is a privilege to do these races you know there's a lot of people out there making sure that it happens safely Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I appreciate the behind the scenes <laughs> look yeah. into like what's on your mind on race day, because it's not yeah. all glamour, right? Like you're really thinking of the worst case scenarios and, and planning mm-hmm. on the fly it's a work. lot of the time. And it's stressful. <laughs> yeah. Like it's quite a bit yeah. more stressful than I envisioned. It's funny because I'm at the finish line and I'm trying to like be there to like, you know, fist bump and shake hands mm-hmm. and hand out medals. <laughs> at the same time, I'm getting texts from my emergency yep. crew hey, you know, we still haven't located runner number 65. And, you know, we're getting concerned that it's, you know, at what point do we call out the helicopter, they call the RCMP to get a helicopter out to do uh, a ground search, right? right? Or start a ground search. Wow. I know those are sort of things that are clear. So meanwhile, I'm all trying to be cheery. And then at the same time, I'm, you know. Like, high five. (laughs) Let me respond to this text. I do have people that focus specifically on safety. Like we have a safety director at our larger events. At the same time, I mean, I need to be aware yeah, of, sure. of what's happening as the as the event director. Mm-hmm. You know, it all flows up to me eventually. So, you know, there's a lot going on in our minds. Yeah, like I said, not as glamorous and all fun and, and games like I, you know, maybe some people um, initially think. So I, again, pr- really appreciate the, the behind the scenes. And we've talked about mm-hmm. um, Sinister Seven. So that's like your marquee event and the Canadian Death Race. It's very popular and Black uh, Spur, but you do have some other ones. I'm, we're curious mm-hmm. if you have kind of a favorite race in the mix. Or is that like asking who your favorite child is? Yeah, exactly. As I always <laughs> say, it's like asking your favorite child. I mean, I love them all for a different reason. I get very excited about some races. Um, you know, our new our new race coming up, Castle Alpine Trail Race. I love the Castle Mountain Resort area. I love the terrain around there. And especially in the fall, it's such a special place. And, you know, I kind of wanted to do a vertical race, but this isn't quite a vertical race. That's not the intention, but there's a lot of vertical. I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of climbing in this race, really sustained grades. And it's going to, you know, surprise a lot of people, I think. Um, but it's such a special area for me and I'm just really excited to get people out there. It's probably the most scenic course that we have. 
Mm. I would say. Uh, I mean, I love. I mean, Sinister Seven is, you know, it's it's sort of like the oldest sibling in the family for me. It, it's it's really a race that uh, has um, inspired a lot of people over the years. Um, you know, and I think that it it really shows Southern Alberta really well, the mountain terrain and uh, the mountain communities down here. Death Race, I mean, like I said earlier, Death Race has inspired three generations of runners. People that ran in the original Death Race back in 2000, they had their kids in the kids' death race back then. And those kids are now adults, and their kids are running in the kids' death race. right? And that's a really inspiring thing to be a part of. Uh, and it's a relentless race. I mean, it's uh, it's a very unapologetic and relentless race. Uh, Blacksburg, I, I love the technical terrain. That's kind of back to my adventure racing days where, you know, some of the trails are, they're barely trails, you know, at all. They're just like a rock gully that you have to climb up. And while it's not self-navigated, uh, there is sort of this element of uh, the sort of the British style fell running, if you know what I'm talking about. Fell running being, mm-hmm. you know, cross country and kind of a little bit of an element of navigation to it. Uh, in this case, there is no navigation, but it feels like there is because you're kind of just climbing up these rock gullies and all these ridge lines. Run the Rocks is a short race coming up just in a week and a half. It's a 5K, but it's through the Frank Slide. And a friend of mine actually gave me the idea. He's retired now. And when we first started doing Sinister 7, I sat with him and he said, you know, there's this race that I think you need to do. The, the story of, of the Frank Slide is that there was this guy, Sid Chuquette, who he was a brakeman for the, uh, the railway, and he ran across the Frank Slide just after it happened to warn an oncoming train. And I just never got that idea out of my head. And it sort of simmered there for a long time until I decided, you know, it's a good time to, to try a little race here and see, see if people like it. Uh, and it is a niche race, right? It's not a traditional run. It's, it's a very much um, sort of a fell running race. But even beyond that, it's, uh, it's partly fell running and it's partly um, parkour. Because <laughs> you have to kind of skip from rock to rock and, you know, you're out in this rock slide. And, uh, and I think you're, you don't have a specific route per se. It's kind of just get from point A to point B in yeah. the quickest way you can. There are checkpoints in the rocks that are, are, are manned by volunteers. And you just have to navigate your way to the checkpoints by any, any way you like. Now, most of the people tend to go straight line to them. But, uh, you know, you look at the GPS uh, afterward, you look at the, uh, the Stravas afterward and, uh, it's quite interesting to see the, the routes that some people take and uh, the, you know, cause the Frank slide, it, it's not like it's just flat. It rolls like waves. And so you kind of go up on top of a crest and you see the checkpoint off in the distance, you go down into a dip and you go back up again on the next one. And it's like, Oh Jesus over there now. How did that happen? That sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of fun. And then our last race of the season was actually meant to happen in May and it needs to be in the spring, I think. Um, but we we didn't want to just cancel it, so we moved it, moved it to October. It's meant to be an off-season race, and so you can expect some uh, cooler weather, maybe some snow. Uh, Hooker, Hooker Crook Ultra, and it's not self-navigated, but you know, I like the idea of giving racers a sort of autonomy over how they want to travel. Now, skiing is not allowed in that race, but um, if the conditions uh, are right, you might want to use snowshoes. In some cases, you might want a toboggan. Really kind of what I wanted to see was people pulling their stuff on a toboggan, but I don't think for a 50K that's really necessary. It's not that long of a race. But uh, I love that sort of pioneer spirit, and uh, that's kind of what I was going for when we came up with that race. 
And, and you know, Castle, Alpine Trail, and and Hooker Crook were kind of, like I said earlier, now I kind of contradicted myself. I said I didn't want to start, start new races. The reason those were created was largely because in the fall, uh, I, I mean, I always have ideas for races, but in the in the fall, when we realized that the COVID restrictions, we had no idea when they were going to end. Um, so we decided as a group that, um, myself and the crew, that we needed to offer a few more races because Sinister 7, for instance, which is normally around 1,600 people, we had capped it at um, 800 people just for the time being because we didn't know if we were going to be able to operate at full capacity again. And we figured that you know half capacity was probably reasonable uh, based on the parameters that we had been given by Alberta Health Services. Uh, we felt we could manage a race even with distancing with 800 people at that scale uh, using staggered starts and all that. So we thought in order to help people that have deferred let's get you know let's pull up the stops let's make some new races that um you know can hopefully take up some of that uh slack because uh, you know honestly we had so many people deferred and we still didn't have enough spots for them in the big races that we host because we just had to cap them at lower numbers so we figured that um it was a good time to exercise some of those, those uh ideas that we'd always had but they're always on the back burner so that was a big part of it was just offering more choices to our, our deferred racers. But, you know, I don't do these things lightly. And, I, you know, I really put a lot of effort into planning them uh, to make sure that we had some some, uh, some really good courses. And there are courses that I think that have been uh, well vetted. And, um, you know, I, I do hope that uh, more people in the future will take us up on them because it's uh, they're going to be really, really a lot of fun. Every year we kind of look at our, our race season and say, you know, what races are working, what's not. And if there are too many races, we'll back off. You know, some are uh, only here for a short time, potentially. Um, but, uh, you know, races like Castle, especially, I want to see grow and, and continue. So on that note, yeah, like what's what's coming up for 2022? You, you sound like you've always got an idea. So what can racers expect next year? Well, we already announced one of them, which is we're going to run Sinister 7 backwards. Which sounds really interesting. Yeah, I had some people say, you know, now that I haven't finished going forward, I can finish not finish going backwards. Um, you know, it's. Uh, <laughs> but I think it's going to be a little bit easier going in reverse because some of the toughest stuff gets done during the day. Yeah, uh, and you get to see some of the best parts of the course, the highest alpine parts of it during the day now. Um, and, and logistically, it's way tougher for us though. You know, the way the way the race flows now is really natural and you end up at a facility where we can have a big dinner and it's all really natural. In this case, now we're looking at party tents and we're looking at, are we shuttling people? They're not going to be starting in the same location. They're not going to be starting at uh, the location where they would normally finish. It's not just a complete reversal. We have to make some changes to make it, to make it flow well. So we're, we're definitely um, rolling along here. And before we close this, this, awesome discussion. We have five rapid fire questions that we like to ask all of our guests and we sent them to you in advance. I'm not sure. Are you ready to roll with those? Sure. You know, I looked at them and I forgot them, but um, go ahead and I'll, I'm not, I'm not shy about trying to make things up on the fly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Okay. So, so our first uh, rapid fire question is, do you have a favorite running mantra? I think I actually would steal one from somebody else. Uh, uh, take, I'll take it from Ray Zahab, who says, racing is 90% mental and the rest is in your head. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Great one. 
Uh, now, I know you live in a very beautiful place. Your races are all in, in picturesque locations, but do you personally have a favorite place to run? I, I mean, I think out of all of our race courses, I think the kind of terrain that I like the best is the, around Kimberley. Uh, it, it just really speaks to me. Uh, you don't get into the Alpine so much, but you just have this windy technical trails, lots of rocky sections, and I really love that. I love that feel. Do you have a bucket list race? Mm-hmm. I'm not really racing anymore, um, just because, admittedly, I have some uh, ongoing health problems that kind of okay. hold me back. And I'm active, and I just i am not racing, so I like to volunteer when I can. You know, if I had a race that I, I really was actually, I was talking to somebody just a couple of days ago about the volunteer experience at um, Western States, mm-hmm. and I would really love to go down there and, and, and experience how they how they handle the volunteers. Because I've heard so many things about, you know, the thousands of volunteers that they get. And it's almost like two volunteers per runner, you know, at the aid stations. And that's really interesting to me. And I'd love to, to see how they do it and uh, to be a part of that energy and uh, help out in a little way. So, yeah, I don't have a bucket list for running. I guess I have a bucket list for races I want to visit. Yes. It would probably be neat for you to be on the other side, like as a volunteer mm-hmm. at a different race. And you may pick up yeah. little tidbits oh, yeah. here and there. Okay. Do you have a favorite running book or movie? Hmm. Not, I, you know, I follow a lot of um, online running forums, race director forums, trail running forums. And, you know, I dabble in following bloggers here and there. Uh, I wouldn't say I have a favorite book. I, I think I spend more of my time reading articles. Um, that that's kind of keeps me up to date. And uh, there are, funnily enough, if you seek them out, there are actually a number of race director forums on Facebook um, and other platforms. And uh, it's funny because having been a race director for 20 years now, I see the questions are coming out. And almost every day in this one particular forum that I belong to, it's like, where can I like get t-shirts and stuff? <laughs> and I'm like, the kind of stuff that I'm interested in is like, so what's your transgender running uh, race, race, racer policy? You know, yeah. what's your policy on harassment uh, between racers? Like, you know, if you have somebody who is, you know, like known to be say uh, harassing another racer and what action can you take? These are kind of the in-depth things that I want to talk about. And that really gets me going. Well, diversity, equity, and inclusion is huge right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that's a big focus of what we do. As it should uh, be. Yeah, it absolutely is. One of the most inspiring things for me right now is watching the rise of strong uh, female ultramarathoners and trail runners. You know, I think that when I think about the stars that that are kind of rising and looking around, even just here, it's all women that I, that I'm, that I'm seeing, um, in, in that light, you know, I think it's uh, it's really great to see um, you know the the gender equity becoming more common in the sport. Now, if you look at long distance races, uh, hundred milers and such, they're still largely uh, male participants, but it's changing. And seeing more women um, finish uh, in the top spot overall is is one of the most exciting things uh, that happened at our tenth anniversary or tenth year at Sinister Seven when uh, Elsa McDonald finished um, yeah. finished first overall, set the new course record, I believe. And I actually told, thanked her at the end, said, you know, that was the best gift anybody could have given me for the 10th year, <laughs> the, 10th, the 10th annual, because, you know, it's so special to, to be a part of that. And uh, it's going to happen more and more. 
And, and I find that very inspiring. Uh, you know, gender equity in our sport is, is, is very important to myself and my crew. And we've made a real focus of our work. What do I say to that? Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you for acknowledging that. All right. Let's finish off with your favorite post, let's say post-race indulgence after it's all done. Oh, let's see. Sleep. Sleep <laughs> <laughs> is a really important one for me. Um, I, I tend to um, get panic attacks leading up to a race. No matter how many times I've done it, I'll wake up at four in the morning regularly like oh my god do we do this do we do that oh my god how's this gonna go are we ready yet um so sleep is a really important thing for me afterward and uh taking some time to uh to just to just decompress you know even watching a movie i mean i don't even own a tv to be honest so watching a movie is like a big indulgence for me and uh if you think about food specifically um i just like getting out and enjoying a really nice local restaurant and uh treating my crew uh, we always try to get out and have uh, some kind of, you know, get together afterward. And I don't really care what I have as long as we're all together and we can all kind of laugh and cry and, you know, <laughs> tie, each other, tie each other in the back at the end and know that we did something great. And that's the best experience. That sounds awesome. The crew coming together and being able to say, look, you know, we really, you know, there were hard times, but we really nailed it. Yeah, and that's... being able to say that we, we did a great thing and we inspired a lot of people. One hundred percent. Well, um, you've mentioned your social media, um, you're on Instagram and, and others. So this is the time where you can plug your, your channels. Where can people find you? Where can they go to learn more? Yeah, we have a ton of different groups for our different on Facebook for our um, different events. We try to create a group for each one. And we have our more general sinister, uh, now I'm probably going to get it wrong here, sinister underscore sports on Facebook and Sinister Sports on Twitter, or sorry, on uh, Instagram and Sinister underscore Sports on, uh, on Twitter as well. We're quite active on Instagram and, uh, on, and Facebook especially. So, And then you have a website, correct? Yeah, sinistersports.ca. And you can find pretty much anything you want from there. And we just actually spent uh, part of COVID um, – took it upon myself to redo our websites and to amalgamate them to one. Mm -hmm. So each one, each race has its own kind of section of the website, but it was just for management purposes yeah. being is easier to manage. It just made more sense to finally bring them all together. Well, Brian, this has been a great conversation. I've learned a lot about you and a lot about race, you know, race directing and what it takes to run a, an ultra in a remote wilderness mountainous area. So thank you for sharing um, so much with us and good luck in the next, well, with the few races you have left on your schedule this, this mm. summer, as well as into 2022. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. 